This is Ian Freebairn-Smith, and on behalf of the board, I welcome you to another ASMAC podcast. What you're about to hear is a recording of one of our monthly luncheon presentations recorded at Catalina's Jazz Club in Hollywood. These podcasts feature leading Hollywood composers, arrangers, orchestrators, and musicians talking about their lives and music. Uh, he was just nominated uh, this past year for a score for a Tennessee Williams, The Roman Spring of Mrs. Stone. And right now, uh, I think, is it Ronald Reagan that you're, you're doing? He's doing Ronald Reagan right now. <laughs> so uh, without any further fumbling, I'd like you to meet John Altman. It's a, it's a great honor to get up here and speak, and I hope I'll have something to say. Um, I noticed when the uh, notification of this event was first put on the website, on, on the ASMAC website, I was referred to as a semi-award winner, um, <laughs> which I quite liked, actually, because I, I think all, the all people who have started as arrangers, I think they feel that they are semi-award winners in, in a, a funny sort of way. Um, it, it's one of those things that one does that 99% of the world actually nod, smile, and haven't got a clue what you're talking about when you say that uh, you're an arranger. Um, I, I think this was very much driven home to me by a friend of mine in London, uh, Mitch Dalton, who's the top session guitarist uh, in London, but had uh, five years of medical training uh, to be a doctor. And he was on the session. At the end of the session, um, somebody took him to one side and said, tell me something. If I hear this noise in my head, could you play it? And Mitch, and Mitch actually responded, well, with my five years of medical training, I could probably cure it. <laughs> but um, but we, it's a very strange, mysterious thing that we do. I, I recall Stan coming out of uh, CBS studios in London um, one day and finding Roy Willett, who a lot of our... British compatriots in the audience, of which I see several, uh, will know. Roy was a very fine alto sax player with the Ted Heath Band and is still one of the leading uh, session players. And he was sort of leaning against a wall holding his clarinet and looking very sort of philosophically around. And I said, uh, what, what are you doing at the moment, Roy? And I happened to look behind him where there were two very young fellows in the control room sort of scratching their heads and pacing up and down. And Roy said, um, we're recreating the music of Glenn Miller. And I said, well, that's very, very nice for you. How, how, how is it sounding? And he said, um, it's sounding as good as four clarinets and four alto saxes in unison will sound. <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, I mean, that, that, that was sort of a picture, really, of... Um, I suppose two young guys who thought they could do whatever they did by looking at the, a picture of a band and saying, oh, well, that's what we've got, that's how we'll do it. But my, my route into this was a very curious, circuitous, and odd journey. Um, I, as Ray said, I was born into a musical family in London. Uh, my mother had 
four brothers, all of whom were band leaders, and uh, all of whom were arrangers, which was uh, quite scary. Um, one brother, whose name was Sid Phillips, was the arranger for the Ambrose Band, which was probably the premier dance band in probably the whole of Europe before the war. Um, Ambrose was somebody who was so classy that when people would go, dance up to the band at the Mayfair Hotel and present him with a pound note with a request written on it, he would give them back a five-pound note with, we don't play requests. It's <laughs> <laughs> absolutely true. And uh, I must tell another Ambrose story very quickly. Um, he was very jealous of the fact that his band, that included people like Ted Heath and Danny Polo, a great American jazz clarinet player, um, and he made a rule that nobody could do any outside recording and that no one in the band could put in a substitute uh, because he wanted his band to be his band, basically. Um, the end result of this was that nobody in the band ever got any time off, ever. And Max Bacon, the drummer, who was also a comedian, noticed that Ambrose always came on stage looking at the audience, conducted facing the audience, and went off facing the audience. So he decided to take a two-week vacation, and he put a gentleman called Morris Berman into the band. Now, on the last night of the two weeks, Ambrose turned round and said, Who the hell are you? Uh, to which Morris Berman said, I've been drumming for you for the last two weeks. <laughs> so uh, that was... Well, that, that, that was my start, and of course, Wolfie Phillips, who a lot of you will have known here, who sadly passed away a few months ago, was my mother's youngest brother. So, um, I grew up in very much a show business atmosphere, and my first brush with show business um, was providing some of my milk ration for John Bowles, who had an ulcer. Um and was performing at the London Palladium where Wolfie was the conductor. So I don't think you could get a more glamorous start in the profession than giving John Bowles your milk ration. <laughs> and uh, what we had at home was a lot of 78s. Um, one of my mother's other brothers had a, a sort of a job as well as quality controller for uh, Decca Records. And we had, apart from a, a large record collection, we had hundreds of test pressings of white-labeled acetate 78. And for some reason, it appealed to me to sort of put these on and listen to them and try and work out what they were and who they were. Quite often, they didn't, didn't have any names on them. And I became possibly one of the oddest five-year-olds anywhere in the world. I... I, I I don't know of many five-year-olds who could sort of sing Jack Teagarden's trombone solo on Darktown Strutter's Ball with the Paul Whiteman band, which I can still do, but I won't do it now. Um, so somehow I, I was sort of... Um, I was fascinated by these names, you know, seeing names on record, on record Richard Himber and his Ritz Carlton Orchestra and Gene Cardos and his orchestra. And, and I developed then my, my love for, for um, I suppose, for jazz, for, for dance band music, for swing, 
this was a very odd time because it was it was bang in the middle of the rock and roll era, and uh, a very interesting illustration was that our teacher at school, who had horrified me the week before by saying, if you have any old 78s, bring them in and we'll make flower pots out of them, which I thought was the most gruesome thing I'd ever heard. But then the following week she said, bring in your favorite records. So um, in the midst of uh, Elvis Presley and Hound Dog and uh, uh, Guy Mitchell singing the blues and God knows what else, um, I'm afraid I turned up with Count Basie's Texas Shuffle, which completely mystified a classroom full of seven-year-olds. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but I, I, I started piano lessons at seven and uh, writing little tunes at about the same age. And I actually gave up piano at 11, as one did, I suppose, in those days. And I, my, to my shameful confession... I've never had a music lesson since, including um, not even taking music O-level, which is the most basic sort of qualification that you could ever do. Um, I can never actually work out why I didn't do it, but it always seemed that I was able to listen to a recording and hear what everyone was playing and hear, hear the relative pitch of, of what was going on, and I could write down what I heard, and it, it just seemed like when I decided to become a um, take up saxophone, which I did when I was 12, 13, I just picked up the instrument and started playing it. And I actually had a gig the, the night after I bought it, which was, I can't imagine what it sounded like. It, it was, but I, I got through it. Um, I went through my whole sort of school life, as it were. Um, focused on academics and subsequently went to university to uh, study English and American literature, which I then went to do, to do a doctorate in and wound up as a lecturer at London University in um, Victorian literature, which is uh, <laughs> where the story probably should end. But uh, somehow through all this, I was playing, I, I was gigging, I was doing... Um, the pop work that, that was around then, and the, the sort of the, I'd got interested in blues music, and I was playing on in the blues clubs. I'd started playing flute, so I was playing folk music. I was I was going really an inveterate sitter in, and I wound up in a little band with a, a, a fascinating guy called um, Alan Leet, who uh, I think he was the actual prototype for the joke. Um, did you hear about the jazz musician who's a millionaire? He started out a multi-millionaire. Uh, somehow this Alan Leet, who'd been born into a very wealthy family, had contrived to lose every penny he, he had trying to start jazz clubs and God knows what. Um, and he bought a guitar and he... He played rhythm guitar. He actually gave me one of the best pieces of musical advice I've ever had, which um, I think is one of the, the great truths about music, which I've, I've tried to follow ever since, which was, um, don't change chord in the middle of the bar. It's against the laws of music. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, I've tried to follow that, but uh, I, not very successfully. Um, Alan also, he, he, he had a very early Gibson guitar from about 1936, which was absolutely beautiful. And um, the club we played at, a lot of visiting American musicians would come in to sit in. And he, he, he would get by, he would sit at the back, and he'd chug away four to the bar. And a lot of people would notice the guitar. And I, I do recall one night, um, George Barnes, the great guitarist, coming in and, and picking it up. And now, what, what, what I have to point out is that he made modifications to this guitar. Uh, for some strange reason, I think, at some stage, he decided to try and put a pickup on it, which consisted of taking a penknife and scraping half of it away. So I literally heard the sentence, which is absolutely perfect, that George Barnes picked up this guitar and went, what a beautiful guitar! <laughs> As he saw this. Uh, so my time at Alan Lee was fun, and I, 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 was, I was getting to play with um, all sorts of interesting people, from Muddy Waters through to, um, well, all, all sorts, really. Um, a lot of the pop idols on, on the scene at the time, like Jimi Hendrix and uh, Fleetwood Mac and bands like that. But also with uh, jazz players, I, I, I was... Um, playing a bit with people like Philly Joe Jones and uh, Kenny Deverne and Bob, uh, Bob Wilbur and Johnny Mintz and Pee Wee Owen and all, all sorts of people who come into like Wild Bill Davidson, uh, Slim Gaylord, who I did several tours with. Um, and I, I then joined, a, I got a very strange phone call from a saxophone player who I'd known who said, would I be interested in joining a band called Hot Chocolate, who at the time were the top sort of pop group in, in the UK, and people would know them here from the film of Full Monty. Uh, their song was You Sexy Thing, which was a big feature in the Full Monty. And I, it sounded a bit more fun than, than delving into uh, um, George, George Gissing's sort of later writings uh, with a bunch of people who didn't actually know much about anything outside the confines of the university. And I took the gig, which for a while was very schizophrenic because I was, I was sort of commuting between going to concerts and with screaming fans sort of throwing themselves at the stage and then charging back to London University to talk about uh, uh, concepts of time in George Eliot's later novels. It was, it was a very odd... <laughs> very odd sort of uh, life, but um, they asked me, do, do you do arrangements? And I, I just said yes, thinking, well, I suppose I do, really. So they asked me to write, they said, we're not happy with some of the arrangements that we're doing, and I started uh, writing for them, and they liked what I did, and recommendations started going out to other people, and I suddenly found myself as a, as a working arranger, as well as a a working saxophonist, and uh, eventually I found that I, I just couldn't combine both jobs, and I, I stopped the teaching to my... Uh, I would love to have gone on with it, and I do have an open invitation to return. I doubt it, but... Um, I, I sort of plunged into the mid-70s world of, of pop arranging, um, 
at the same time a group called the Pasadena Roof Orchestra who specialized in, in 1920s dance music uh, approached me and asked me if I would be their musical director. So I, I took on that job and started um, writing a, a whole new book for them, which was great for me because it was the music that I'd grown up with and I, and I still really adored. So I, I was writing a lot of charts for them. And I got into, some again through someone else, two, well, three areas that, that proved very, very beneficial. I, I started working with the Monty Python team right at the height of their success and sort of jumped in on that, the coattails of that by doing uh, the film The Life of Brian for them and a show called The Ruttles, which is a parody of The Beatles, which was a very funny program that's still shown today. It had, basically had most of the Saturday Night Live people in it. And I, would, I did their stage show. I dressed up as a mountain and sang the Lumberjack song and did, <laughs> did all those sketches on stage. So that, that, that was fun. And still a relationship that I maintain today. Um, I also started doing commercials in, in the UK. And I, I have to say to this day, I, I've and I know this is a fact because the public, the company I worked for went public. Um, I have a strange record of having done the most commercials of anybody, certainly in Europe. I wouldn't know about here, but uh, I've done over 4,000 up, up to this time and had some very interesting <laughs> experiences along the way with, with people. Um, I remember going into a meeting once where... Um, They'd uh, selected a Duke Ellington tune, I'm Just a Lucky So-and-So, um, for their campaign, for a building society. And uh, the, I went in and they said, and this is again about, you know, concepts of what an arranger does. Um, they said, um, we've got two versions by Duke Ellington, one's from 1945 and one's from 1964. And he his voice has changed. He doesn't sing it the same way. <laughs> so uh, you sort of bite your lip and say, no, no, well, you know, that, 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 that sort of happens over time, you know. He says, the trouble is, we like some of the 1945 one, but we also like some of, some of the 1964 one. Um, is there anything we can do? And I said, well, you could have your own arrangement of it. We could. I said, yes, well, it doesn't have to sound like that or like this. Can you explain that to me? And you think, no, I can't explain it to you. I can't explain it to you because it's impossible. Um, we, we went into um, a meeting once, and they put the script in front of me, which I still have at home. And it was for um, a creamer for uh, coffee. And they said, we have this great idea. It's all music-based. I said, great. They said, you're the cream in my coffee. Played on the black notes of the piano. <laughs> and then as you pour in the cream, the white notes join in. I said, well, that's, that's going to work. That's really going to work. <laughs> Again, you know, people, people not knowing. Um, I remember once doing a commercial for, um, 
for, for Kraft Cheese. And the director, who was a very nice fellow, um, we, we, we went into the control room after the first take, and there was that pregnant silence where you know that if you don't say something, there's just not going to be anything said. And, of course, all the musicians have trooped in behind me as well, so he has a room full of people who are obviously hostile to him. And after about two and a half minutes, I said, uh, any, any ideas, any thoughts? And he said, well, he said, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to start at the beginning and then go all the way through to the end very nicely when it stops. <laughs> and I, I said, I'm afraid that's the only way I know how to write music. <laughs> uh, I, I remember once we were in the studio as well, we were doing a, a campaign for um, the... Uh, it was for hypothermia to, to, to get people to wrap up warm in the winter. And they'd hired Dame Thora Hurd, who was one of our premier actresses, and incidentally, one of Mel Torme's mother-in-laws as well. <laughs> um, and it was Morning Has Broken, the... Uh, the folk song, played by flute and strings to lull everyone into a sort of gentle sense of security while, while this message was read by Dame Thora Heard about wrapping up warm. Um, I, I arrived at the studio an hour before any of the musicians, and the, the client from the, the British Health Council was already there, which was a bit of a worry because, you know, nothing was going to happen for a while. And not only was he there he had that look on his face that every one of us has come to, come to know that there is something very seriously wrong look. Um, but I'm looking at him and I'm thinking, well, what could it possibly be? There's no musicians here. There is nothing here that could have upset him. Um, but I thought I'd better check. So I said, uh, is everything all right? And he said, yes, yes, you know what you're doing. I thought, great, you know... <laughs> That works. Okay, I know what I'm doing. Um, do you have a problem with something? And he said, no. He said, I, I'm, I'm not going to be the one to tell you what to do. I'm completely mystified because it's an empty recording. There's, there's a, a room that is empty. So I think, well, he's, obviously, he's lost his senses or something. Something's wrong. And then, and then he got to that moment where he... Obviously, it was, okay, now I'm going to speak. So he stood up and he said to me, you do know what we're doing today, don't you? I said, yes, uh, we're doing Morning Has Broken for the Health Council of um, uh, an, an arrangement. He said, good, good. Um, and he sat down again. And I just still completely and utterly mystified. I, I said to him... Um, is there something that I've missed? And he said, no, no, I'm not going to tell you how to do your job. But, I thought, but, okay. How loud are you going to have those castanets? I said, I'm, I'm sorry. He said, how loud are you going to have those castanets? I said, I, I, I really do not know what you're talking about. He said, Look, he said, 
you you might have some sort of whim or you know I know, I know you musicians have these crazy ideas you know and it could work but uh, I said I, I can assure you I have not written castanet into it and just at that moment the engineer said could you test number four please <laughs> there it was there it was the castanet. <laughs> uh, we also had a, a commercial for, for, for Miller Beer, and the lyric of which was something like Miller Beer, the beer for men, men drink it because it's macho. And we had six singers right down at the bottom going, Miller Beer, the beer for men. And the guy was sitting there, again, looking completely nonplussed. And we said to him, Is there something wrong? And he said, Well, he said, It's just not just not the effect I wanted. I wanted to sound like Clint Eastwood. Oh, okay. <laughs> Interesting, you know. Um, and the, enge the engineer said, Clint Eastwood isn't really a, a singer, you know. And the guy sat there and thought for a moment. He said, oh, yes, he is. <laughs> that was it. That was it. So... Commercials, which were an interesting sort of field to be in. And also, once I heard possibly the best put-down ever, which again was of uh, Ray Swinfield, who was also a great clarinet player who played with Ted Heath Band. And the girl in the control room actually said, I studied clarinet for three weeks, and he's playing it all wrong. <laughs> which, is, which is a great one. But I'd, I'd started at that time also arranging for... Um, an English composer who, um, one of the nicest people I know, but uh, had come up as a 60s pop songwriter and had written a lot of successful songs and had got in with the BBC. And um, his actual musical composition consisted of uh, everything in C major, everything having C, A minor, F, and G, and funny chord, which he used to write down on a piece of paper. Funny chord being a diminished. Um, somehow we parlayed this into the most successful TV series that the BBC has ever produced, which is still being shown worldwide every, every day of every year, uh, which is Miss Marple, which was the um, most extraordinary thing to work on. But um, the raw material was, was, was very, very bizarre. Um, but one encounter I had was with a producer called John Hawksworth, who died last week. Not, not the bass player, John Hawksworth, but um, produced Upstairs, Downstairs, and Duchess of Duke Street. Really great name in television. And to his credit, um, and this isn't a put-down, as I say, because when, when I got the end credits, of one of these dramas to, to score, I noticed that my name wasn't on there as musical director. And one of the reasons I'd, I'd taken the job was to get a, a credit. And um, I rang him and said, I haven't got a credit. Oh, we rang the BBC and they said, we don't credit music arrangers on drama. So I rang John Hawksworth and said, um, you know, I'm a bit upset because I understood I'd get a credit. And he said, leave it with me. And he rang the BBC and said, I will not let this program be shown unless you put an arranger's credit on this show. 
so certainly a man who was on our side. But I, I do recall one meeting with him where he said, uh, we've recreated a battle in the English Civil War exactly as it happened. We have 8,231 cavaliers and 9,252 roundheads, 646 horses and 897 guns. So... Um, I think we can let you have eight musicians. <laughs> and I said, don't you think that's going to get a bit lost? He said, well, I don't think there's that much music. He said, uh, if there are a few more minutes of music, I could understand why you'd want more musicians. And I said, I said is it a sort of kind of relay race then? You know, I can't play another note. I'm going to hand over to you. But uh, pe people's perceptions were very bizarre of, um, you know, the sort of, armory that you could get away with but um, I then had well, I had a few few very very kind benefactors I'd say over, over the years one, one of whom was Don Black the lyricist who who um, always putting me forward for things that I felt that I couldn't possibly do and got me working as an orchestrator for Elmer Bernstein and for Julie Stein with whom I had a wonderful time playing him obscure songs of his that he'd forgotten he'd written, uh, and then complained about the fact that they weren't hits. <laughs> so, that was a good song. Why wasn't it a hit? But um, I, I, I got a call to score a movie. Well, I got a call to, to arrange a film, which turned out to be uh, Keanu Reeves' first ever appearance as a 17-year-old. Um, it was a Charles Bronson film. And um, they'd hired a pop songwriter to, to write the score, and they brought me in to sort of supervise the score. And I'll never forget, there was a, a ten-minute sequence at the end of the film where uh, Keanu Reeves and two other assassins go in to murder this whole family. And uh, the pop songwriter sat there with his guitar, and he played a, a low E... Boom, 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 boom. And after about two and a half minutes, everybody looked at me, and it was sort of, I think you're writing the score for this film, which I, I, I wound up doing, but um, not getting the credit. He got the credit. But uh, my next film, which I actually did score, was um, still, I think, one of my favourite movies. It's a film called Hear My Song, um, which was sort of based on the true story of Joseph Locke, the Irish tenor, who skipped uh, the country, who was a very big star in England in the 50s, and fled the country for, as, when um, income tax demands were made. And it was a really sweet film with Ned Beatty as Joseph Locke. And the nice thing about doing the movie was that I got the chance to put everything that I'd ever learnt and done into the one film. There was the, the sort of the operetta side of it, of... of getting um, all those pieces together. Then I, with the director, we agreed that um, we'd try something... Well, it sort of organically happened, but we'd try something slightly revolutionary. And um, what I did was I had a lot of thematic material that I, I orchestrated in about eight or nine different ways. So the theme would emerge as a sort of a hot club of France type thing, then it would be a big band track, then it would be a synthesized modern sounding thing, then it would go into 
Irish folk music. And we sort of twisted things around. It was the first film that Miramax ever distributed in, in, from England in the US and was quite successful here. And I, I won a British Academy Award for it first time out. So I thought, this is easy. <laughs> you just do a film and they give you an award. It's great. I like this. And that, was, that brought me here for the first time when I, I met Ray. And since then, I've been scoring both British and American films. Um, a very varied sort of mixed bag, mixed bunch. Um, two that stand out particularly, I think, were um, Little Voice, which has been mentioned as an, a very interesting movie, where... Uh, I had to, I had, well, we, we had a lead actress, Jane Horrocks, a very talented girl, who, who had never sung with a band, never sung with a pianist, let alone with a band. And here we were making a film where she's singing as Judy Garland and Marlene Dietrich and God knows who else in front of a big band. And it was, it was very interesting to actually have a singer who, you had to direct in acting terminology because she didn't understand anything about musical, you know, you couldn't say anything musical to her about sort of, if she was rushing the beat, you had to teach her how to do it in theatrical terms and not in musical terms. So it was a very interesting sort of operation to, to go for. Um, another interesting project, uh, and I also had to teach Michael Caine to sing, which was a very interesting experience, and he was terrified, he was absolutely petrified, didn't, and in rehearsals couldn't do it, had no sense of time, had no concept of beat or anything like that, and when it came to filming, he said, right, everybody out except for the cameraman, I don't want anybody here, and he just sort of gritted his teeth and did it, and if you see the film, it's a it's quite extraordinary performance, I mean, it's intense, but that's how he was when, when he did it. Um, another interesting film that was very well received here was a film called Funny Bones, which sort of disappeared off the horizon, but people love it. People absolutely love it. Um, it's a very strange film, very interesting, and again, similar sort of thing, being able to write music that went everywhere, ev everywhere and anywhere. Um, we had a... <laughs> A marvellous guy in it called George Carl, who I'm sure a lot of people here would remember, who was the uh, most extraordinary variety turn in his day. The guy who used to juggle with his coat and his, his hat, and the, the hat would go in the coat, and the, the ladder would get caught up. Um, but at the time, I think, he'd, he'd, he'd just gone past that point where he was particularly aware of what was going on in the world. Uh, <laughs> And one location for six weeks in Blackpool, he got in the lift one morning, and Jerry Lewis got in the lift, and who was also in the film, of course, and was in there. And he looked at him, George Carl looked at him and went, Jerry Lewis, what on earth are you doing in Blackpool? <laughs> After six weeks of being on the same movie with him. <laughs> <laughs> We, we also had dear old Harold Nicholas, who was a great friend of mine of the Nicholas Brothers. And uh, Harold had also sort of, unfortunately, I'd, I'd recommended him for the part of the, the MC in the Las Vegas show at the beginning of the film. And he was wonderful. He danced beautifully and he sang fantastically. 
but he could not remember any dialogue at all. And the director um, rigged up a, a contraption that went into his ear, a sort of an earpiece. And when we were all set, um, the thing about, which I'm sure you know, is Har Harold Nicholas was about five foot two. And Oliver Platt, who played the comedian in the film, is about six foot six. So um, Harold had to do this introduction and adjust the microphone for Oliver to come on. So um, it looks very good on film. What happened was the director would say, ladies and gentlemen, and Harold would go, ladies and gentlemen, it gives us great pleasure. It gives us great pleasure to introduce to you, to introduce to you. And this went on until the end. And, and then Peter, the director, said, move into the mic, Harold. Move into the mic, Harold. <laughs> oh, that's me. So that, that was also an interesting film, and a very, very funny film that unfortunately sort of uh, fell victim to studio politics, where there was a change of management. And, uh, but it's, it's become a cult sort of movie, and well worth seeing. Very interesting movie. And then Titanic, which was uh, something very interesting to do. Um, I, I was asked to produce and arrange the period music for the ship's orchestra in the film. And quite amazingly, but not that amazingly if you, if you think about it, the, um, we had virtually a complete playlist of what was played on, on deck and on, on the ship the night the ship sank. Because all the survivors remembered all the music that was played. And so it was all written down. That, well, they played this, they played that. So um, between going to Library of Congress to pull out things from um, the Tipsy Bitsy Girl and shows like this that I don't think anybody's ever heard since 1909, um, it was fasc fascinating to, to get these pieces. And I also did some great... They're marvellous recordings. My, my big regret is that we did an hour and a half of music for the film, and there's about an hour's worth of it in the film, and it never got a, a record release because they thought the film was going to be a flop. And they held back on releasing the, my part of the soundtrack for a second album. Of course, by the time the second album happened, James Horner had sold so many records that he had... Uh, carte blanche to do whatever he liked with the next album. So we, we, we virtually got nothing out on that film. But again, as an example of, of insensitivity or, or whatever, I was with the music, the head of music on the movie, and he was saying that they wanted to use this Swiss group, who they actually use in the film as, as the band, who specialised in playing the period music. And... Um, he said, well, I'm not sure if they speak English very well. The guy I've spoken to uh, sort of understands English, but he's not fluent, you know, and I, I'm not speaking Swiss or, or, or Swiss German or anything like that. I said to him, well, what happens if we run into sort of communication problems on the session? He said, fire them. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> The studio mentality at work, but um, it, it, was, it was a very interesting project to work on, and I, I've been lucky in that respect in that the, the movies I've got to score have been, you know, very enjoyable, and 
slightly off the beaten track, but somehow I've always been able to include my my sort of love of earlier music and my love of film music and 40s music. Um, I've carried on arranging as well. I've I've been I've did a lot of record writing for uh, various artists over the years, and I carry on playing. I, I still have this futile hope that the big bands are coming back. <laughs> I still keep doing it, but uh, we, we, we have a lot of fun, and uh, I, I keep gigging furiously, There's people I gig with here, which I'm very pleased to see. And um, that's really where I am now. As I say, a strange detour from talking about uh, mid-19th century Victorian fiction, but uh, I, I, it's the same thing. It's, I can tell you lots about that. <laughs> are, are there any any questions about anything? Your favourite song? Well, uh, that's always "Look on the Bright Side of Life," which which it's one of those things. It, it's sort of uh, working on. Life of Brian, um, they wanted a song for the end of the film. So Eric Idle and I got together and we, we, we sketched it out. And it was a very. And Eric said, phone Terry Jones, the director, and find out how much they need. And I phoned Terry and said, how much of this song do you want? He said, about 15 to 20 seconds. So, so it's no secret that he hated it and still hates it <laughs> to this day. But it's become a sort of a cross round our neck. It sort of it got taken up by the football fans and sung at the, the games, and then it went it went to the top of the charts. And I found myself on top of the pop, sort of years after I thought I'd be pensioned off. And um, it's just had a life of its own, sort of completely. And of course, the film it it runs for the whole five minutes at the end of the film, uh, and then after that, you hear me whistling on the soundtrack. It's just very nice. No, the underscore was all library music because they they didn't want to pay for a score. But uh, I do. I get. I get. Uh, if you sit through about thirty-five minutes of the end credits, I get three credits. In fact, at the end. But uh, I'm, I'm called the Historical Music Advisor, which I, I thought it might be better to be Hysterical Musical Advisor. <laughs> but I did get a phone call from James Cameron up a ladder in Mexico at three in the morning, which was very interesting because I had to sing Nearer My God to Thee through a megaphone to the poor souls in the water who he wanted to sing the lyric. And nobody, nobody in Mexico knew how, how the lyric fitted the melody. So I got the phone call. Very bizarre. How they would have heard it from the way I sang it is, is anybody's guess. But, uh, it's a quick story. Um, Leon Goosen's the oboe player. Very, very fine oboe player. And the doyen of a, a great family of musicians. Um, his two sisters, Sidney and Mari Goosen's, were the premier harpists in England. One... Um, Mari lived to 98. Sydney is still with us at 102. Um, Sydney, um, 
her grandson is a bass player called Chris Lawrence, who is a phenomenal classical, he's the premier principal bassist of the Academy of St. Martin's in the Fields, and he's also the main, one of the main jazz bassists in England, which is very rare in Europe, certainly, for um, a bass player to cover both disciplines. And his first ever recording session was the BBC Concert Orchestra at the age of 16, where he was, of course, sat next to his grandmother, who was on harp. So, just before... <laughs> Before the whole thing starts, he's, he's standing there, and he turns around and says, Give me an A, Grandma. And the conductor says, How dare you talk to that woman like that? <laughs> you young people today, you've got no manners. <laughs> this is our most respected musician. But she's my grandma. <laughs> Give me an A, Grandma. <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to ask, with your expertise in musicals and things like that, it's, 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 I wanted to, I was just curious what your initial reaction to you on Rudy's play. Well, <laughs> it's sort of... For me, uh, I, at first I didn't like it, but then the more I thought about it, it's mm. more it's a pretty ferocious thing. I mean, I, I was sort of party to a lot of it because my friend was the, the, the musical director on it, Craig Armstrong. And he had a hell of a time on it. It was a nightmare, really. But it's quite a. I mean, I'm fascinated by. I've 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 had an original idea for a musical with Don Black that we're trying to to do anyway. But I'm I'm working on a musical supposedly at the moment, a musical, which is the Shall We Dance, the remake of the Japanese film with Jennifer Lopez and Richard Gere. So that's going to be interesting. Yes, I mean, I'd I'd love to to do a musical and to, to do something where, as I say, I mean, I, I, I'm so lucky, I think, that I, I became this voracious music listener when I was young because it enabled me to, I mean, I've, I've, con I've, I've conducted classical orchestras, I, I, I love the music of Delius and a lot of the more obscure British composers, the, the C.W. Orr and E.J. Murren and uh, Peter Warlock and things like that. I, I just love still get as excited by by finding a, a sort of a you know unreleased Ben Pollock record from 1929 as I do hearing you know some, something else so it, it, it's I'd love to be able to combine all those things into one one project definitely well that's all I know thank you Thank you for listening to another ASMAC podcast. We welcome your feedback at asmac.org. This is Ian Freebairn-Smith on behalf of the board, and I would like to invite you to attend our events, including luncheons, master classes, and our annual Golden Score Awards banquet. For a complete list of our podcasts and DVDs, please visit our website at www.asmac.org. Many thanks to Larry Goldman of Balboa Studios for recording this talk and to Elliot Barker of Elbar Media for editing it for broadcast.